Well, once again, good morning. And can I just say, it's so nice to see some faces out there. So smile at me, okay? Today we celebrate the ascension of Jesus, his bodily return to heaven. After he was raised from the dead and appeared to his disciples, proving to them that he really had been raised to never die again, Jesus then returned to his Father in heaven. In one way, this is kind of a sad part of the story. The ascension means the real absence of Jesus from the earth. Think about what that must have been like for his original followers. They had just lived through the trauma of losing him to crucifixion. Their hopes had been dashed and their Lord had been violently killed. Then they experienced the absolute euphoria of finding him alive again. He ate and walked with them and taught them from the scriptures just as he had done before. But this reunion was never meant to last. At his first appearing to Mary Magdalene, the lucky one who got to see Jesus first, you might remember that he said to her, Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Jesus was reunited with his disciples for a short time before he left again. Not forever, but for the rest of their lives anyway. It would be kind of like waking up one morning to find your lost loved one has come back to life, but you only get to spend one day with them. That's kind of like the emotional whiplash that Jesus' first disciples might have felt. And even for Jesus, the ascension had a sorrow to it, for he himself does not know when he would return to see his friends again. He knew that he would return and renew all things, but he said, as for that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So this gives us a glimpse as to why the ascension was and is a complex part of our story. And it helps us understand why Jesus spent so much time preparing his disciples for this great departure. Why he spoke to them about it in their very last conversation together in the book of John before he died. He said things to his disciples in chapters 14 through 16 like this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and that I will come again to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Many of us need to hear these words again today. We need the promise of God's peace, his call not to be afraid, because our lives are hard. We live between the times of Jesus' first and second coming, where lots of things remain unresolved. It's like being in a long-distance relationship, which, if you've done it, is terrible. So we yearn for the day. We long. We anticipate Christ's return. We say it every week when we come to the Lord's table. We say, Lord, come again. Put all things in subjection under Christ so we can see our Lord face to face. Until then, in the world, we will have trouble. We will struggle to believe. Our hearts will be heavy. Peace and joy can feel elusive. 
Until Christ returns, we have an enemy who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. I'm starting out with the bad news because I think it frames our current experience. Living between the times is hard. And it's not because you're a failure. It's because you're vulnerable. It's because the story isn't over yet. But somehow, in full knowledge of these facts, Jesus still said to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. He says, if you understood what the ascension means, you would rejoice. And somehow, even though his first disciples didn't understand all of this fully, even though they didn't want Jesus to leave, somehow even they went away rejoicing when he finally ascended. Luke 24 tells us that at his last conversation with his disciples, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So what's going on? How could this be? There are lots of ways to answer this. The ascension really is good news for a lot of reasons. But we're going to focus in on one aspect of that this morning from Jesus' words in John 17. In this beautiful prayer, we get a tiny glimpse into what exactly Jesus is doing right now up in heaven and how it turns our sorrow into joy. So that's where we're headed. And the first clue we get is not from the actual words Jesus says in John 17, but to whom he is saying them. What is Jesus doing in this chapter? He's praying. He's speaking to the Father on our behalf. Jesus Christ has a relationship with God unlike any other human being who has ever lived. He has such unfettered access, such unbroken intimacy with God that Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And what does Jesus do with that access to God? He intercedes for us. He advocates for us. He asks the Father to bless us. Try to imagine what your prayers would be like on the night before your own death. I would probably be praying for courage. Lord, help me not to be afraid. Help it not to hurt so much. Help me to live long enough to see my sons one more time. I would be praying for myself. And elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus absolutely does this. He prays that God would let this cup pass from him, and then he asks for courage to do God's will no matter what. But here in John's Gospel, on the eve of his betrayal and death, Jesus spends his time praying for us. Even when he starts out at the beginning of the chapter, he says, Father, glorify your Son. He then goes on to say, why? Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you since you have given him authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. As Jesus set his face toward the cross, he does so with us in mind. And as he begins to anticipate his return to the Father, because Jesus knows that's where the story is headed at this point, he does so with us in mind. At the start of verse 11, which is where our passage picks up, Jesus references his ascension. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. This prayer reveals the priestly heart of Jesus. 
Former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, wrote a little book uh, back in the 70s called The Christian Priest Today. And the very first chapter describing the ministry of a priest is about the ministry of prayer. Ramsey says that the character of priestly prayer is to be with God with the people on your mind. And this we learn from Jesus. To be with God with the people on your mind. When we put this in the context of the ascension, we understand just how powerful, just how priestly Jesus' ministry is to us now. For now, he is in the very presence of the Father. We heard in the book of Exodus this morning how the first high priest of Israel was instructed to wear a special breastplate every time he entered the holy place, the place where God's presence could be found. It was a kind of shirt inlaid with stones that bore the names of Israel's tribes, God's people. And the reason for this, God explains in verse 29. This is from Exodus 28. He says, Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Jesus is our high priest. And he has gone not to a temple made with human hands, but to the very throne room of God. He has ascended to heaven, not with our names engraved into a stone on his shirt, but into his very body. Isaiah 49 says, Behold, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. To put it another way, Jesus has returned to the Father, and he's taken you with him. He represents you to God, bearing in his body the whole story of humanity, in all our frailty, in all our vulnerability and need. The very contingency of earth is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, interceding for us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews tells us, but one who in every respect was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Friends, Jesus knows how to pray for you because he has lived your story. He understands the limitations of being in a human body on a broken earth. He knows what it is to suffer and be tempted, to be tired and hungry and betrayed and heartbroken. And he is praying for you. And here's what I want you to know. His prayers are efficacious. The father listens to his son. He has put all things under his feet. So you can be confident that Jesus' prayers for you will be answered. You can be confident that the good work he started in you will be completed. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For Jesus has gone ahead into the very presence of the Father to pray for you, to guard and to keep you in his name until he returns. With the time we have left, I'd like to look at some of the specifics of Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's such a treasure to have this little sample of his prayers for us because they reveal his heart, but also his agenda, his plan for us during this time of separation. So we know what he's doing up in heaven, but this prayer reveals something of what we're supposed to be doing on earth. It shows us what to expect in this interim season, not only in terms of how it might be hard, but also in terms of how it might be good. So just briefly, we'll look at three prayers Jesus offers here. He prays for our safety, he prays for our unity, and he prays 
for our mission. So first, our safety, starting in verse 11. Holy Father, he prays, keep them in your name. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This language about God keeping us in his name is kind of mysterious. John is a poet, remember, so he likes to use pretty words that are sometimes hard to understand. But Jesus interprets his own prayer when he mentions Judas, this son of destruction who betrayed Jesus to the authorities that crucified him. Judas was lost, but that was part of the plan. His betrayal was allowed in order to fulfill God's purposes. But here Jesus makes it clear that Judas does not represent the norm for those who come to him in faith. The norm and Jesus' sincere prayer is that God himself would keep us in his name, that he will participate in and ensure our faithfulness meaning it's not all on you to keep at this thing. Jesus asks the Father to keep you. He himself will guard your faith. And again, this language is mysterious, but it's also an echo to guard and to keep. It reminds us of Adam's original vocation in the garden, to work and to keep the garden. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same verb in Genesis 2 as it does here in John 17 to guard, to keep. In his earthly ministry as the new Adam, Jesus has cultivated a new garden, a new creation that one day will cover the whole earth. And it starts with us. It starts with this fledgling group of followers who at this point in the story are sorrowful and afraid of Jesus' departure. But as he returns to the Father, he asks the Father himself to guard and to keep this new garden, this new work of God in and for the world. Jesus then goes on to talk more about the world in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we've already talked about how things are hard down here. And that's in part because following Jesus is, for now, like swimming upstream. It cuts against the grain of a world that invites us to be our own gods, to follow our own ambitions, to love and to bless every cultural idol and its promised pleasures, every short-term solution to our pain. The world hates us when we don't live by this false story. Now, for the early disciples, and for many Christians around the world today, this hatred is very explicit. It means physical torture and death. It made many Christians around the world martyrs. But here we see that Jesus never promised us an escape from that. He doesn't ask that we are spared from tribulation or trouble. Instead, he prays that God would keep us from evil. We'll understand better why he makes this distinction later on when we see how Jesus prays for our mission. But first, and perhaps as the link between our safety from evil and our ability to succeed on mission, Jesus then prays for our unity. Again, starting in verse 11, keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. He repeats this later in verse 20. It's not in your bulletin. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word 
that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He continues. Jesus gets really redundant here because this is really important to him. Verse 22, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The unity of the church and its importance to Jesus could be its own sermon, its own book. But this morning it's worth simply noting how many times Jesus repeats this prayer to his Father, how deeply he desires our unity with other believers, that we may be one. Now the path to this kind of oneness can feel very opaque, even overwhelming, or at least that's, that's where I go immediately. How do I fix this? I can't. There are over 200 Protestant denominations in the U.S. alone. Not exactly what Jesus had in mind when he prayed for us to be one. And it's not exactly something we can just have a little committee and fix this afternoon. Sorry to break it to you. But the brokenness of the church simply illustrates the point of Jesus' prayer. We need God's help to learn how to love each other. The church is his project. We are his project. We have been brought into his family, the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we have a lot to learn in order to live that way. So we can start by listening to Jesus' own prayer and learning to pray as he does. Every week we practice this in the prayers of the people when we pray for all who fear God and believe in Jesus Christ, that our divisions may cease and that all may be one as Christ and the Father are one. As we pray this way, our hearts begin to change toward our brothers and sisters who are different from us, maybe who worship differently from us or even who just look differently from us. And we are drawn to God's work of bringing us back together, something so much bigger than we can accomplish ourselves. And that work often starts very small, right here in this room, with the passing of the peace, with extending forgiveness to those who have hurt you, with coming to the table and remembering that if God is your father, then these are your brothers and sisters. This is your family. You know, you don't get to choose your family. And sometimes they're really difficult. And Jesus prayed that we all would be one. And of course, this oneness is the very lifeblood of our mission to the world. Our high priest has not rescued us from the world. Instead, he has sent us into the world, together. This is his prayer in verse 16. He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. These verses right here are one of the primary reasons this chapter has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. All this language about sanctifying and consecrating, it's very priestly language. But it's actually all the same word in Greek, so it's a little bit easier in the original language to see the pattern of Jesus' prayer. It goes like this. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. For their sake, I also make myself holy, 
that they may be made holy in the truth. So that's the pattern, but what does it mean? In biblical language, the word holy often means set apart. A priest was made holy. He was consecrated, set apart for a special purpose, a special ministry. The priest alone was able to enter the presence of God, who was himself holy, set apart from creation. But here, Jesus takes that priestly language and applies it not only to himself, but to us. He says, make them holy. Set them apart from the world. Not in order to abandon the world, but to go into it as I have done. As you sent me, Father, so now I am sending them. This is the purpose of our time together in this season, while we wait for Christ's return. As we learn to love each other, to follow Jesus together, the pattern of our communal life sets us apart from the world. But this holiness, this otherness, isn't so that we can escape from or condemn the world. It's for their sake. It's for the sake of those who hate us and who hate each other, who don't know any other way to live. To a world that is drowning in polarization and cancellation, the family of God is given as a beacon of light. When we model forgiveness and reconciliation, novel concepts, when we honor and love those who vote or even vaccinate differently from us, when we hold each other up through seasons of suffering, we are a sign to the world that there is another way. And I'm not suggesting we paper over our differences or disagreements in the name of unity. Sometimes love compels us to disagree strongly, to speak the truth to each other and to duke it out. But we're called to do that without dehumanizing each other. We're called to disagree in the context of mutual respect and love. And that is something the world needs to see very, very badly. We are God's new creation project, a new society forged in his love and after the pattern of his own triune life. And he upholds and apprentices us in that very life. The Father keeps us. The Son prays for us. The Spirit sustains and empowers us. This is why we celebrate the ascension. It is the means by which, even while we're separated from Christ for this short time, we are brought more deeply into the fellowship and into the mission of our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen.